Our scripture today is from the book of Psalms, chapter 66, verses 1 through 8. If you would like to follow along in your pew Bible, please turn to page 528 of the Old Testament. Be joyful in God, all you lands. Sing the glory of his name. Sing the glory of his praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. Because of your great strength, your enemies cringe before you. All the earth bows down before you, sings to you, sings out your name. Come now and see the works of God, how wonderful he is in doing toward all people. He turned the sea into dry land, so that they went through the water on foot, and there we rejoiced in him. In his might he rules forever. His eyes keep watch over the nations. Let no rebel rise up against him. Bless our God. Bless our people. Make the voice of his praise to be heard, who holds our souls in life and will not allow our feet to slip. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. One of the interesting hallmarks of my past ministry was that it was 30 minutes away from a small Christian university and seminary where I was friends with many of the professors. And from time to time, I would receive a phone call that started this way Jared, there is a student. Now, usually that started a conversation about a student who was struggling, maybe not academically, but spiritually, struggling with whether or not there was God or if God was present or if God was listening or whether or not they can hold faith and doubt together. And, and oftentimes these professors knew exactly how to answer the students' theological or philosophical questions. They were just concerned that they would be in a church community with spiritual guidance that would actually walk with them in those difficulties. Being friends with some of these professors meant I received that phone call, Jared, there's a student, which I did take with a great deal of, uh, of, of joy, and it, I thought it was a, a wonderful compliment to their thinking about me, but it also meant that there was some heavy lifting to do from time to time. One time I received a phone call that said, Jared, there's a student. He's sharp, but he's lazy. He's got a strange sense of humor. He's not really interested in much of what we're doing here. Can you please see him? I said, sure enough. So they sent the student up to me, and he drove the 30 minutes, and he sat down in my study. He, he was wearing a black T-shirt, two sizes too small, oversized cargo shorts, and black low-top Chuck Taylors with no socks. He wore a black hat with a straight bill cocked up on his head. And I began to ask him about what was going on inside of him. And he used a word that I think is all too familiar to today's culture. He says, I'm apathetic. I uttered this Latin word under my breath, acadia. There was a sort of listlessness of his spirit, a sort of a, eh, to life. He told me that it was interesting that he knew the theological language. He knew the logic to talk about God being there and God being present, and that when he felt better, he believed the logic. But when he was feeling this way, this listlessness, this apathy, when it had set in over him, all that logic didn't make sense anymore. Same logic, just different feelings. Isn't it interesting how feelings can actually become larger than logic in our minds? 
Maybe it was naive that I knew the answer for his problem. It just so happened to be that I was correct. I said, I need you to come with me. We walked outside of my study and into the church parking lot, and way on the south lawn were these large community gardens that we had been growing for people to work in. It was my conviction that it would be really important for Christians to reacquaint themselves with the process of growing something to eat. All the relationships you have to enter into to make something to, to eat. In fact, you don't make anything, do you? You, you only help nurture a process along. And, and by growing something in a garden, you're reliant upon soils and, and fertilizers and rain cycles and the weather and the sunlight and so much just to produce something to eat. It, doing so can reconnect you to how profoundly beautiful and contingent we are in this world. I took him out there, and I thought, this is the panacea. This is the answer. Get him in the garden. Get him off his devices. And I saw him go out there, meet a few people in his Chuck Taylors, tight black shirt, and immediately he started pulling plants instead of weeds. And I cringed, but I thought, I'll leave him to it. And I left him alone. I bet you're aware of this, but most people um, aren't re readily thinking about it, that, that the way we've considered the human self throughout the ages has changed. It hasn't always been the same. Charles Taylor, the philosopher, says that in the ancient world, in the pre-modern world, the, the self was a porous self. What does porosity mean? Well, water can pass through a porous rock. The porous self is the self that is absolutely open to the world around it. The poorest self can be affected by nature, by creation, by gods, goddesses, the spirits, the nymphs and the fairies, demons and angels alike. All of that world can affect the poorest life. It means that for the poorest person, the world is absolutely enchanted, meaningful, but after the Enlightenment, the modern self was buffered. Think about the buffered self this way. It's like if you took a big hula hoop and put it around you, and that were to become a wall, nothing can affect you to affect who you are in your identity. From the hula hoop, rather, from yourself, buffered outwardly, you defined the world. It was you who made sense of the world. There was no spirit. There was no demon. There was no magic. There was no anything out there that could dictate you. It was you looking at a world of mere facts. Now, what this means is for the modern world and those shaped by the modern ima imagination, you and me, largely, we lived in a world that was no longer enchanted. The world had lost its magic, or to use Christian language, grace. The world is just a mere collection of neutral facts. And when you grow up in a world like that, my friend's feelings can become part of your spiritual journey, a sense of listlessness, a sense of apathy, looking at the world and not finding it very miraculous, just kind of blah. Now, people like me and professional ministry have been asked to give tools to people who are in that state and in other states 
tools for them to walk the spiritual path, to, to, to try to see where God is moving and try to connect with the divine wherever they are. And I think we need to analyze those tools and see how they have been working. One tool that we've been taught to give, whether you're in that state or not, is to simply say to people, you know what you need to do? You need to go to church. Go to church. There you'll find God. But what if going to church was where you saw the most inauthentic expressions of love and faith? What then? When I was 12 years old in my church, I knew the most important thing that we did in worship was the sermon. It was in that church. I think it's Holy Communion. But, but in that church, the most important thing we did was listen to the sermon. And it was so important that everyone was supposed to be in the sanctuary to hear the sermon. I was 12 years old, so I felt the spirit of bathroom come on twice for every sermon. I remember slipping out the back door of the sanctuary into the narthex, and I took that long walk down toward the bathroom, which went by the secretary's office where they counted the offering. And I noticed there was a group of five men, five pillars of my church. I remember because we talked about them with these these hushed tones. I remember that they were great godly men because their names were on parts of the building. And I saw them in that room sipping coffee and laughing, and I thought they must be doing important business. The next Sunday, I slipped out the bat for the bathroom again. I was only 12. You can forgive me for my sins. I noticed as I went back down that hallway, there was the same group of men. Each week, I'd go out to the bathroom, and I noticed this group of men, and it hit me by the time I was about 14. They weren't doing business. They just didn't want to be in church. What if it's there that you find the most inauthentic expressions of faith? Or what if it's worse than inauthenticity? What if when you're told to go to church, you don't just find inauthenticity, you simply find it worse, boring, which everyone from Generation X down, boring is actually the greatest sign of inauthenticity. What, what happens then when you're told that's where you find God? I remember getting my hair cut at a place in Bloomington called Who Does Your Hair? And I was sitting there talking to someone in training, this young girl. She was in uh, hair school. She's sweeping the floor. And I noticed this big, beautiful tattoo of a cross on her arm. And I asked her, about that cross, she smiled and looked at me, and she says, oh, I believe in Jesus. I'm a Christian. And I said, is that right? Well, I'm a minister. I thought she'd be excited about meeting one of us. She wasn't. So then I followed up the only way I know how, and I said, well, where do you go to church? And she said, Cornerstone. Now, I'm going to let you in on some Illinois knowledge about church. Uh, Cornerstone, I know, is the name of many churches probably somewhere, but she wasn't naming a church. She was naming an art and music festival that happens one time a year in western Illinois out on the farm, and it's called Cornerstone. It happens every first week of July. I said, what do you mean you go to Cornerstone? She goes, well, I don't think church is very interesting, so I just go there, and that's where I get all that I need. I thought, oh, my. One time a year, she must have a heavy reservoir to fill up, carry through the year. 
There are other tools that we give people for when they're looking for that connection with God and maybe struggling to find it. One I was given a lot when I was growing up was daily devotional time. Have quiet time, some people call it. I remember I was struggling one point in time, and someone said to me, have you been having your quiet time? And you know what I thought in my mind? Is that really all there is? Do I live in a world that is like divinityless? It's a divinityless desert, and I just walk it, waiting for those oasis moments when I can get cool cups of water, but for me, really, they were cups of hot coffee at Panera, when I can pour over a few pages of Scripture and say some prayers. Is that the only touch tone I have with God? And if I'm honest, it wasn't a lot of times that I heard God tell me anything. Is that it? What happens then? Oh, and there's more. There's more tools. We've got more tools in the toolkit for those of you who feel spiritually dry. We, we might say that the thing to do is to serve. Go and serve somebody. Yeah, I get that. That's good. Service is good. I'll endorse it. By the way, you can quote me on that. Jared said serving is a good thing. I'll go on record. So does every other religion and every other moral school. No one finds serving uh, problematic. But what, what, what when it becomes a duty-binding thing rather than a divinity-binding thing? Friends, quite simply, for many, and I hope not for you, but for so many in our world, the world lacks enchantment of any kind. Even if you want to say the word grace or simply God givenness. For many of us, we lack the amazement that there is something here rather than nothing here. There might as well be nothing, but there's something, and that ought to astonish us. But for many of us, we are not astonished. We want to be. And church, if you have any gift to offer this world it is that astonishment. If you have any gift to offer, offer a world that's apathetic, it is enchantment. It is grace. It is mysterious beauty. It is ineffable love. And the world is hungry for it. I remember several years ago, Pokemon Go came out. It's a game people played. And I saw people walking up Peachtree Street and on the front stoop of the church with their cell phones out. They're navigating the ordinary world, which, let me assure you, is anything but ordinary. It's extraordinary that it exists. But because we are listless and bored of it all, they invented a game where they could have a hyper-real moment and see virtual reality things. The world wants what you have to offer. I believe that at the heart of our faith lies poetry. And it is in poems like... Read, read this morning, poems like this psalm where we see this poetry and, and, and we find that the cosmos is dripping with the inexhaustible and mysterious glory of God. Psalm 66, verse 3, say to God, how awesome are your deeds because of your great power. Your enemies cringe before you. You do not have to go anywhere to find God's presence, church. Don't you know that you are always already present to God? Look at verse 7. 
There we rejoiced in him who rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. We are always already present to God. What the psalmist would have us do is learn and relearn to see, to see the world properly as given and graced by God, as a sign of God. But seeing this way is difficult because we have beaten our souls into banal and boorish buffoonery that allows us to see the world not with delight, but as a consumable item, or to ignore it, or to scoff at it. Learning to see means that we see it all, all of creation, from the cosmos to the common birds as a gift, teeming with meaning inherent to itself and beyond itself. Now, if you want reason to go to church and to have a quiet time and to serve, this is it. Church isn't just a place of worship or fellowship, but it is school for the soul, teaching us how to see the world rightly, how to discern God's presence all around us. Friends, the Christian imagination teaches us to see the world differently than the world sees it. We're called to see it as given by God, inhabited by God, and made to be a sanctuary for God. We have one of the most glorious sanctuaries I've ever had the opportunity of worshiping in. I don't have to argue that to you. But it reminds me that great Old Testament scholar Margaret Barker. She says that the pattern of the temple in the Old Testament, the way it was built was according to the pattern of the creation story. And the point is, is that the meaning of the temple and the meaning of the creation story are largely the same. They overlap. When you think about that temple, you think of that great holy of holies, the the place where God lives amidst his people. Well, that's the story of creation. Creation was meant to be a temple for God. In short, friends, the way the psalmist and the way the Old Testament writers and the way the book of Revelation makes it, the entire world around you is to be a sanctuary with altars abiding everywhere. All the world is a sanctuary. You don't have to go anywhere to get a glimpse of God's goodness. God is always near. You know, I let my friend work in that garden for about three weeks. I usually went out there after him to replant the things he pulled. Something in the garden got a hold of him. One day I went out there. He came up to me in the heat of the day. I said, hey, how you doing, bud? And he goes, oh, my gosh. He's real manic. Oh, my gosh. I can tell you, I, I'm probably not saying this right, but I mean, it's God. Is there a God. <sighs> Catching his breath. He says, it's like the air is thick, like I can move it with my hands, like like God is all around. I don't know. I'm probably saying it wrong. I said, well, there might be more poetic ways to say it, but you're getting the point. God is here. God is near you, and all the world is a sign of God's love for you. 